Thank you. It's wonderful to be with you. And I want to tell you, your pastor, Jim, and this is not a mutual admiration society here, but Jim and Terry are one of the top-notch pastors in the entire Wesleyan Church, and you happen to have them. You need to give a hand. I mean, I hear people all the time say, how can we get them? How can we get them? So you better take care of them, you know? Yeah. But it's wonderful to be with you all today. And, and this church, I was just thinking that I was first with this church when we lived, we used to pastor the Berkeley Hills Church in Grand Rapids on the northeast side. And, uh, and I came out to Allendale in your old church a long time ago. Then I had to be, I would had the opportunity to be with you when you're in the school and then here several times. So God has his hand on you. I want you to know that. And that I believe the church at this time in history is the most important piece that the church has ever done. And I'll talk about that as we move along. You are part of the change. You are part of the hope of the world. And no place else is. Only God's church. And you've got to believe that you are a part of that. God selected you to be a part of that at this time in history. You know, our, um, the, the sociologists who've done all kinds of study on what's happening with us now these days tell us that now we are rootless, all of us, the culture, this is our culture, rootless, lonely, and restless. I mean, I don't know about you, but I, I can identify with that myself personally. You know, rootless, well, where do we belong? Who's where? Da, da, da. Lonely, yes, da, da, da. And restless. What's going to happen next? The whole, in fact, the whole, our whole culture is very anxious. Anxiety permeates our culture. We have diagnoses. Those of you who work in schools say we have never dealt with children with so much anxiety these days. So much depression. That's part of part of where we are today. And this is also where God wants to call us as the church to begin to speak to this, to begin to do the things that can change and, and bring hope to people. And you look at the suicide, I mean, I could list all the stuff that you read all the time. I don't need to do that. You read it all the time. But I want to tell you there's hope. And the Holy Spirit is, a, is alive and well now. Just as far as part of the world is concerned, uh, if you want to know where the fastest growing church is in the world today, it is the underground church in the country of Iran. Fastest growing cell groups, fastest growing, growing, growing in the country of Iran. And it's interesting, the people that are leading that are young women, which goes totally against the culture. God, God is countercultural, by the way, in case you didn't know that. Shows who his power is, who he is. Now, I can't get a visa to Iran. I've met with Iranian leaders. We've met in, uh, in Switzerland. But I can't get a visa to Iran. You can't get a visa to Iran. But guess what? God can. <laughs> God doesn't need a visa to go to any of these countries. He's at work. A few weeks ago, I had the privilege, and I was honored to participate in the first ever. Now, this is a, a ridiculous almost to sound. It sounds crazy. But the first ever multi-faith conference to be held in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. And I was invited by the president of the Muslim World League. Now, there's something going on there. And I was free to talk about Jesus. A few years ago, if you mentioned Jesus' name, bingo, your head went off. Free to talk about Jesus and the values of, this, of what Jesus, the values of Jesus that can strengthen a society. It was an amazing time. It was interesting, though, when I was in the restaurants, I began to hear, because in the restaurants, in, this, in the hotel where, we, where this meeting was, are Filipinos, Indians, Indonesians, etc. 
And guess what? When they found out, and some of my colleagues had a great big, one had a great big cross on, they said, oh, you're Christians. Oh, you need to know about the underground church we have. The Filipinos, we got underground church here. It's, it's, it's amazing what's going on. And then they said, you know what? This conference has strengthened us. And I thought, isn't this interesting how God works? He uses the marginalized people to lift his name in some interesting ways. So I want to tell you, as we read all this stuff constantly, and I just want to say, uh, through World Hope, we've been working uh, with refugees in Poland and in uh, Moldova, and also just recently, just two weeks ago, right in Ukraine, with, uh, in Odessa, which is next, close by. So uh, the leader of World Hope, about a month ago, was into Odessa and found out that the frontline workers, the medic, paramedics, all this, they, all they had were like 1940s first aid kits. I mean, you're not going to put a Band-Aid on a broken arm or a Band-Aid on burns. And they're taking care of everybody there, everybody, not just soldiers, but the people that are suffering. You've read, you see it on the news all the time. So he came back and he was really burdened. He said, we've got to get professional medical kits for these people that are war kits where they can take care of burns, they can take care of splint, broken arms, all this kind of thing. So they did. So God helped us to raise funds for 3,000 of these kits. Got them shipped in. Then they went in two weeks ago with trainers and to train 400 of these leaders with these kits in that area. First thing found out the trainers were Christians, were believers, found out that these 400 that were there were believers. And they said, can you put uh, the Lord's Prayer in Ukraine in every one of these kits? We want to pray with the people that we're working with, and we want to pray for ourselves. Did that. They did the training. They were praising God, said, God sent you. You, you, you don't know what this has meant. And we have a little video. I can send it to you, Jim, a little video that shows the training. A week after our trainers were there, a large apartment building in the city of Odessa was bombed. And he sent, they sent pictures, just crumbled all over the place. And the leader of that group wrote a text back to the World Hope office and said, God sent you in time. We were able to save lives. Now, that's not going to be on the news, but I'm giving you the news right now <laughs> of what God present in these places. And people died, of course, but they were able to save many lives because they had this little kit that God's doing. God's at work in many, many places. And there are terrible things going on in the world, but God is still present among his people in those places. I want you to know that. So today, I felt I needed to preach to you because we need to be encouraged. And it takes courage to encourage a person. It's far easier to tear somebody down. You don't have to take any responsibility. You tear that person down, you don't have any responsibility with it. But when you encourage a person, in a sense, you're giving part of yourself away. You're giving away your power when you encourage another person. And you make yourself vulnerable, actually, when you encourage a person. Now, I don't mean that you say to somebody, oh, I like your shirt, or you know, a cute little sweater, or I like your tattoo, or whatever. Sometimes I, yeah, I probably say it, and I probably don't even mean it, you know. And, uh, but it's that, it's that, those are just compliments, kind of for conversation. Encourage is in depth. And that's what I want us to look at the scriptures today. When you've been studying the book of Esther, didn't Mordecai take courage to encourage Esther? And Esther had courage then from his encouragement. She could move forward because Mordecai was giving her the strength 
That's what we need to give each other the strength is we're the body of Christ today and all that's going on, we need to give each other strength, not tear each other down. So funny little example, but when I was six years old, lived in Enid, Oklahoma, we share this old Oklahoma past here, Jim and I. I still have my accent. He's gotten more sophisticated. I never even got a change. We lived in, in Grand Rapids for eight years. I still never got that good Michigan. I can never still say it, the O correctly. And uh, like you all do, you say it so perfectly. Um, but I was, um, I had this little friend. I came in and I said to my mother, I just hate Donna Kay. And the more I said how much I hated Donna Kay, the more I hated her and the more powerful I felt. I just hate Donna Kay. I just hate Donna Kay. Well, my mother's kind of a homespun theologian, and she said, now, Joanne, you can't hate Donna Kay. You love her soul. Now, I didn't know the difference between a soul or whatever. And I said, in my anger, well, I may love her soul, but I sure hate her old body. <laughs> and I think that's what we'd say sometimes. Well, I hope they get to heaven, but I probably won't want to see them even if they're there. Right? Okay. That's what we're talking about today is what God is calling us. So I want us to look at the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is an amazing book about encouragement. It talks about uh, the, the people that were persecuted and the world was not even worthy of them, of, of the life that they lived. All kinds of things. But the book of Hebrews was written to second generation Christians in Rome. There's a discussion about the author. You remember the book of Hebrews always says the unknown author. There are many scholars who believe that Priscilla was the person who, pre, who wrote the book of Hebrews. They've gone back through her writings and it matches and the very spirit that she had and all that she did, but she could never sign her name to that because she was a woman and it would not have been accepted. So it's just been known as the unknown author. So this was written to second generation Christians in Rome. There was a gap in persecution. Now, let me tell you, the first generation of Christians in Rome came straight from Pentecost, filled with the Holy Spirit, a new power. I want you to know when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's a power there that gives you courage, gives you, you, uh, you begin to see the world in a different place. And the, the culture of Rome, now think about the most powerful city in the world today. Think about Tokyo, think about Washington, D.C., New York City. That's the power that Rome had. And the philosophers had taught for generations that if you showed any kind of mercy, you had a character flaw. Now think about Jesus' teaching. <laughs> Love your enemies, etc. Oh, no, you know, no mercy. And so they came back determined to live out what Jesus said, and God gave them, the Holy Spirit gave them the power to do that. One, I could give you many pieces of what was in that culture that day, but I'll just give you a couple. One was they had no value for life. No value for life. Thank you for what you're doing on the ultrasound machine. They had no value for life, abortion was rampant, but they also did not, if you had a disabled child or a child with any kind of disability, that child was just thrown on the side of the road. I don't mean they were killed, they are just, just abandoned on the side of the road. So there were all these children, disabled children in all kinds of ways. What's the first thing that they did, the Christians started doing? They started going to the side of the road and picking up these children and bringing them in and taking care of them. Now, that didn't make the Romans Happy, but they didn't care. This is a, this'll soon be gone. These are people that doesn't matter. There was great disparity between the rich and the poor. 
And in the poor sections of Rome, large buildings and people lived crowded. The, right, the sociologists tell us that the, the density of the population in those, that part of Rome was four times that of Calcutta, India today. You can, it's hard to grasp that. They lived, they, their lives were short, their life expectancy was very short, covered with sores, no help, uh, open sewers, the whole business. What did the Christians do? They went down there and started helping them. They started giving them, helping them with health and started giving them life and praying. And guess what? Many of those poor, Christian, uh, poor people became Christians. They became followers of Jesus. They saw who Jesus was. They'd never heard of him before. That the power of God so began to move in them and they began to move. These children that were thrown on the side of the road became Christians. And I can go on and on. The people that they brought in, the people that nobody wanted, they brought in. Well, Nero was the emperor at that time. Nobody even knew who these people were. Nero was the emperor, power, and he was not very popular. So he decided if he would burn Rome, then, and he had a pinch hit for building, that he could rebuild Rome and he could gain a lot of notoriety and he would be loved. So he started a fire in Rome. Well, the fire burned, and there's statements made that he stood up in the tower and he said, it is as beautiful as a flowerlet. Well, then it didn't happen like he wanted. The people started turning against him, and his advisors came in and said, we gotta blame this on somebody. Who can we find? Somebody said, oh, you know, there's that small group. Uh, we, I think they're a Jewish sect or something, not quite sure. They call themselves Christians. Let's blame it on them. And they did. And that's when the persecution of Christians started. One of the things that, that uh, Nero did was he took, they would find Christians, roll them in tar alive, set them on fire, put them on a, pot, on a pole, and would be light for Nero's garden parties. It was during Nero's time that Peter was crucified. And they were... He, Peter was not a Roman citizen, so he had to take the crucifixion as Jesus. And then he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified standing up like my Lord. Please turn me upside down. Paul was a Roman citizen, so he died by the sword. Now, there are many other stories at that time. Now, these Christians that the book of Hebrews is written to had heard those stories because they're second generation. You see, they'd only heard the stories, they'd never lived it. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to write to them and encourage them. And it's almost prophetic. Let's look at this first verse here that says, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Interesting. Sin's deceitfulness. Oh, it's okay, nothing, da, da, da. I can't begin to give you the stories of what they must have heard during that time, what they were living with during the time. So how do we encourage one another daily? Well, we encourage and we inspire confidence in each other. Give people confidence. Just reading a book by David Gergen, which has worked with four presidents, and one of the things that he talks about is constantly encouraging people with their strengths. Don't talk about their weaknesses. Don't tell them their weaknesses all the time. Encourage, move on your strengths that you have. Move on your strengths. Tell people their strengths. Inspire with confidence. Give hope and courage. We have hope, my friends, and we can courageously move 
Make strong, hearten. Well, this is what this means. And don't move into sins, deceitfulness of you're no good. Nobody cares about you. You don't have anything. God, I loved what we sang this morning, worship team. God's love for us. God loves us. This, there is none like us, like God. And he rose from the dead and it's the power of the resurrection and God's love for us. But we tend to believe nobody likes us. Nobody cares about us. This is, what, this is why we need the body of Christ to encourage in the very depth of what I'm talking about. Well, they, those, those people in Rome did not know what was happening next, but here's the next wave of persecution that happened. In, they had a 20-year gap, 20-year of peace of no persecution. And then Domitian comes in as the next emperor, and immediately he, he crucifies Simeon, who was the bishop of Jerusalem, boiled John in oil, John, John, the disciple of Jesus, who wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And guess what? John didn't die in being boiled in oil. So then he abandoned him to the Isle of Patmos in the Mediterranean. I've been there. I've seen this place where John was. We wrote the book of Revelation from this place. Timothy was beaten to death during Domitian's time. Titus was eaten by animals in a Colosseum out in Albania, present-day Albania, which would be over next to Italy, just across from Italy. And there's it at Duras, which is right on the coast. And I've been there. I've seen, been into this Colosseum. There's not much. I mean, there's not a big fanfare. Just Colosseum, little sign. This is where Titus was martyred, eaten by animals. But you know what? Titus, Timothy, Paul, all these people still live today, don't they? They could not be killed their spirit and their life and their writings continue to guide us this day. Well, we look at that. That's what happened next. Now let's look at this next. But the, the people that this is being written to, they don't know what's going to happen next. But I want you to take a look at these scriptures that are being written to them to, to help them to know what's happening next. Look at this next scripture. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now they did not know what day was approaching. This is a prophetic book that was written. This was a, a prophetic book to help people to realize, be prepared for what's going to happen next. You don't know, but be prepared. You need each other. So, so stay together. Don't give up meeting together. You know, we, we all want to just kind of be on our own. This is a great call that we, in these days, need the power of each other. It's about uh, spur one toward love and good deeds. Now, good deeds is more than just, okay, so I have three boys. They were all in Boy Scouts. They wanted those badges. They don't want to work very hard for them, but they want those badges. So I remember one day, they said, Mom, get out here. We need to help you across the street. I said, I can walk across the street. Myself. No, if we help an old lady across the street, we get a badge. <laughs> now, I think sometimes our good deeds are just transactional. Let's see, what I, if I do this good deed, what will I get from it? No, you may not get anything that you get when it's a true good deed. Thank you for the ultrasound machine that you're doing. That is a true good deed that's about life-saving. You'll probably never know the women whose lives you have saved or the babies' lives you have saved. But that's what good deeds are. It doesn't mean you get something back. 
That's what it is. And then, uh, how do you spur one another on? That means calling out the gifts of people. So there used to be a, a church in Washington, D.C. that was, it was just a house church. Became one of the most influential things in, this, in the entire city. And what they would do, they constantly met together, small groups, and they would say, I see in you this, I see in you this. And people came out of there, I can name, name even some senators and leaders in our world who came out of there because people saw in them what they could not see. I think many times in, our, in us, we see, well, I think I'm this, I think I'm this. But when someone comes along and confirms it, whew, that's encouragement. That helps you to say, I can move out. I have the courage now to move on out. I have the courage to move out and to do something. Um, I used to teach college, or college groups. And so one of the things we did many times was a small group. And try it in your small groups. Anybody can do it. You don't have to be smart to do it. and Just do it. <laughs> and uh, so um, I called it strength bombardment. Eight people in a group. One person sits in silence while the other seven people go around and tell that person all the strengths they see in them. Then the next person sits in silence and seven more people and all the way goes around. I'm telling you, people weep and weep and weep. And I'll never forget one big arrogant football player and uh, he started crying. He said, I can't believe that people see this in me. I've tried, I've tried to do other things to cover up that I thought I didn't have anything really so that's why I was so arrogant but I want you to know if you really see these strengths in me this makes me change you ought to try it in your small group it will encourage you that's about calling out the gifts that's about the strengths that are there in this place as we look at this there is no isolation in this this is living together uh, about the loneliness is interesting in the UK they're trying to handle the United Kingdom. They're trying to handle loneliness by the government. And so they now have a whole section of the government and have hired a minister, not a preacher, I'm talking about a, a, a politician, minister of loneliness. Now, I don't think the government can help us with our loneliness. This is about the people of God at this particular time in history and has always been. You can go through history. It's a people of God that have moved and led and done things. This will take care of the loneliness. I thought about a friend of mine recently wrote an article about the shootings that we're seeing and all this is taking place. And he said, our lost boys of America, only the church can reach out. It cannot be legislated. We can be on both sides of the gun legislation. I'm not here to talk about that, but I'm talking about how do we reach these people that are so lonely out there? These people that are, have so much anxiety, how do we reach them? Nobody else can. It's the people of God and what you have to offer. Let's look at this next verse. Make every effort to live in peace with all people and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now, I want to say that word holy. All of us say, well, that's... that's brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so or they live in a corner and they pray all day they're holy people no 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 every one of you are holy if you're walking with God when you walk in the grocery store you take the Holy Spirit in there that grocery store is different because you've walked in there when you go to your job you're taking the Holy Spirit in there it's different because you've taken the, that's living like Jesus is a holy person 
Living like Jesus, being where, who you are, how, having God speak through you in different places. That's what this means. Be holy. It's not off in a corner someplace. It is in the toughest parts of the world today. The darkest places are where the brightest light shows. That grace of God, giving people grace. We used to talk years ago about giving about garbage margin. In other words, a person that we saw and things we didn't like and all the kinds of things they did, we would just saw, that's garbage, that's margin, I'm seeing beyond that. That's grace that we're giving. Grace to people. Okay, but I'm giving you grace. And then no bitter root. That's about forgiveness. Now, I want to say I am very familiar with abuse and marriage and brokenness and terrible things happen, terrible things happen. But I'm here to say that forgiveness does not make the other person right. It makes you free. Otherwise, the person that is giving you so much trouble that you think about all the time, they are still controlling your life. That's why Jesus said, love your enemies, Pray for your enemies. Now, every one of us in this room have enemies. I know we think we don't because we see enemies, I gotta fight them or whatever. No, people we disagree with, people we don't like, etc. They are our enemies. So what has God called us to do? Pray for our enemies, love our enemies. Well, 100 years ago, I used to be a school teacher. And I had a principal and he didn't like me and it was mutual, I didn't like him either. And so, every day we sparred. I would go to school, some days I'd win the argument. Some days he'd win the argument. And I found out that's all I thought about. I mean, every day when I got home, he was on my mind. How am I going to win tomorrow? What am I going to do? How am I going to do that? And it hit me, goodness, he's totally controlling my life. And we have to realize that, that the people that we have trouble with, etc., they control our lives. So that's what we've got to get free. I'm not excusing them in any way, but we've got to get free of that. So the Lord spoke to me one day and said, you need to pray for Mr. Blah, blah. Uh, I cannot pray for him. I so dislike him. I cannot pray for him. But I, okay, Lord, I'll pray for his wife. So I started praying for his wife. Dear Lord, you know what a terrible man this is. Dear Lord, give her strength and grace to live with him and all of this. And I kept praying that prayer and praying that prayer and praying that prayer. But you know what? The more I prayed for her, the more God gave me insight into him. When you pray for your enemy, I want to say, it's an interesting thing. And I've done this in many, many, not just this experience, but many others. I begin to get insight into those people. What makes them behave that way? How can I give grace in this? How can I move on? How can I move on without this, without this controlling me? How can I move on on what God has in mind for me without this controlling me? Because you see, it stops. God can't do through you what you, he wants to do through you because you're stopped. Because you hate so much. You got to get free. Well, I never invited them to church, sorry to tell you that. I really didn't even want them there, frankly. I know, I'm, I'm sanctified and everything, but I still didn't. And uh, one day, we were pastoring, one day I looked down and here was Mr. Blah Blah, his wife and three boys on the third pew. I was stunned. Well, I went on and shook hands with them. Two Sundays later, I saw all five of them come forward and accept the Lord as their savior. Now, you know what? That would have, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have happened had I not finally let it go and started praying and trusting God. So I just want to give you another little example of this. So in uh, 
you have 20,000 Westlands in the country of Pakistan. You see Pakistan on the news, it's a, it's a very difficult country and a highly a place for high persecution. So worked there in Pakistan a lot and our Christians and our leaders and in, in 2005 they had this terrible earthquake up in the northwest frontier province. It's kind of a little strip that goes here, Afghanistan's over here and there. And uh, this earthquake was 7.9 and went for 90 seconds. They said those Himalayan mountains just moved. Now that's, so interestingly enough, our leaders, Wesleyan leaders there are so strong and so respected by some of the Muslims, many Muslims there, that they called to him and said, Pastor Bahadur, we need Christians to come up here and help us. Can you help us? Now that's where Bin Laden is, by the way, it was. And uh, so our response, he called me, God miraculously provided money and they were able to go up and work in that area and Builds help with schools and various things to help the people in, in this stuff. With, I mean, literally, big craters, just everything was blown apart. So four months later, he called me and said, Could, Joanne, we'd like for you to come up, and, and the superintendent of police wants to meet with you. We'll stay at their house, and he wants to show you what you've done, or what we have done. And I said, okay, well, at that time, then, I found out there was a $23 million price on Bin Laden's head. Maybe I can find him up there. <laughs> World Hope could use $23 million, so I'm going to go up there and find him. And I looked around in those crannies and cracks in the mountains and everything. Of course, I didn't find him. But it was interesting. One of the Islamic leaders in one of the schools that we had helped came out. And he said, um, I just want you to know. I mean, it was, he didn't say thank you or anything. He just said, I just want you to know that we hate Americans. Okay, I can't do anything about that. And I want you to know that we hate Christians. And I'm looking for the exit sign. And then he says, but I want you to know that we like you. You know what I thought? Here's a man who's been trained to hate Americans, trained to hate Christians, so he couldn't put it in his head that someone who is his enemy would do good. That's what Jesus is calling us to do, those very kinds of things. And so when we look at that uh, in this whole process, then the next verse I want us to take a look at says, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Now that means we're loving and caring for each other, courage to encourage each other. But then we got to move out, move on out of ourselves. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For that means being with people, helping people who are not like us. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. That is calling us outside the gates. That is calling us to the marginalized. Three years ago, I was down at the border, and I know there's much discussion about immigration. And I'm not talking about immigration policy. I'm talking about people. And I was with some other people who we went to El Paso because churches down there were doing the phenomenal kinds of things. Walmart, I mean, uh, ICE, would, people would have gone through all the process. I'm not talking about helping somebody across the Rio Grande River. But people had gone, gone through all the process, and then ICE would call churches and say, well, there are 200 people in the Walmart parking lot. You can do with them what you want. 
Starts with pastors down there. I said, what are we going to do? He said, one pastor, I remember from a large assembly, the God Church said to me, boy, this blows your benevolence budget in two days, you know. But we can't let people just lay in the, in the Walmart parking lot. So I was down there with a group, and we went to some of these churches. And I'll never forget, it's one small church. I'm talking a tiny church. A little Pentecostal church had three rooms in that church. They had turned their sanctuary into cots for all the people. And they were taking 60 and 70 people a day, and then, then you had to move them on, help them to move on to where they had been assigned to go. And uh, we walked in there, the sanctuary and cots, the, the, one of the Sunday school rooms was a place to eat, and they had a hose that they'd, garden hose that they'd rigged up and put plastic around the people to take showers. And uh, as we were there, standing there, she, the pastor said, I want you, I want to introduce you to some people. And they were all babies crying, laying on nah, everybody head, head down, terrible. And I'll never forget, it still brings tears to my eyes. She said, I want you to meet, we have five pastors with us today. Suddenly, they all sat up. Children ran and grabbed us around the legs. And the people said, oh, pastors, pastors. We haven't seen a pastor for months. I'm telling you that day, people, I cried. All their stories, etc. But that's the marginalized. That's whether you agree or don't agree, they're still people. They're still God's people. And these, these all happen to be church people that had come. They'd been raised in the church. They needed a pastor. So that's what we're talking about. Outside the city gates, the care of people. Jesus took care of people. Jesus called us to do that. The least of these. I want to close with 25 years ago was my first time to go to India. And uh, it was, we have, I was working with the, the leader of our church in India, Wesleyan Church in India, is in the, the um, state of Gujarat. Now, in the state of Gujarat, India, they have non-conversion laws and non-baptismal laws. So, uh, I, I keep wanting to get pastors from here to go, but nobody from the States ever wants to go where they have non-conversion laws and non-baptismal laws. You've got to figure out a way to get around it. But you know what? We have Indian pastors that are building churches and bringing people to Jesus, and God is at work. You see, again, God doesn't care whether those laws are there. He still calls people, calls people to him. Great things. So our leader there had said to me, this is 25 years ago, he said, Joanne, I want to start a school. I just feel like I need to start a school for the poor and that, that have no opportunity for education. And so he said, could you come over and take a look? And I knew that he then needed money to be able to build the school. So I thought, well, I'll just do all this in one fell swoop. So I had a friend who had a lot of money and I said, you wanna go to India with me? And she said, yeah, I'd love to. I hadn't really checked out where she was used to going or how she traveled. So anyway, we got on a plane, flew to Mumbai, and I realized as we talked on the way that she only stayed in hotels like the Ritz-Carlton. Ugh, and I had to manage for us to stay at the YMCA that night. <laughs> so I called her by name and I said, yeah, we're going to the YMCA. Oh, well, is it safe? I said, oh yeah, I'm sure it's safe. Yeah, it's there. Anyway, it was great. Then I hadn't paid attention. We had to travel on a train for two hours on up to where we were going. And I thought, oh, that first class ticket is kind of expensive. Let me get a second class ticket. Well, guess what? On second class tickets on the train in India, there are no windows. There, are no, there is no glass on the windows, just bars. So all that sun blows into you as you're traveling on that train. They, you also do not have an individual seat. You sit on a bench. 
And as the train stops, more people get in, and more people get in, and more people get in. You squish, squish, squish. And then there's somebody that up there, and they squish, and their legs are hanging down in your face. It was a new adventure, that's for sure. But when we got to the church, walked in, here were these 25 little children sitting there. She began to cry. She said, I, I can't believe this. She said, she felt God's presence. And then our leader said, See these children on this front seat? They are children of prostitutes, the lowest of the low in India. And they have no name. And we are giving them, they had, came to us with no name. I can't, it's hard to even understand how you could live without a name. But he said, we are giving them names. We're giving, telling them who they are by the name we give them. He said, so this is Mary, this is Esther, this is Hannah, this is Daniel, this is David, and we're teaching them who they are by the name we have given them. My friends, that is incredible encouragement to the very depth. This is saying, I don't care how you were born. I don't care what your, parent, your mother is. I don't care where you came from. You are God's person. You are made in the image of God, and we are going to give you new life. We are going to give you who God intended for you to be. By the way, my friend paid for the building, the little building, little block building. But I was there a few years ago, and there are many times, but I was there a few years ago for a big celebration. That school now has 1,500 children in it, self-sustaining. And a young man came up to me, and he said, I remember you when you came to the church that day. He said, my name is Daniel. I knew who this was now. That was the child of a prostitute who had no name. And he went on to tell me, I finished college, I got a master's degree, and I'm in business, I'm very successful in business. I've got businesses all over India, businesses in Africa, and God's helping me in some marvelous ways, and I'm helping the school now to help support this. And he went on and on to tell me what he is. I thought, had not somebody told him who he was in Christ, who he was, he was like Daniel, that meant he had courage, that meant he could do all these things, no matter what caste, no matter the lowest of the low that he came from. My friends today, that is what God wants us to do. Give courage. Encourage people at the very depth of who they are. Not sit around and criticize, but who they are. You know, my friend in India could have said, well, <clears throat> this is the lowest of the low. We don't have money. We really can't take care of them. And, I'm, and then he went on to tell me all the different lives of all of these that I did not meet, but I met this young man face to face. That's the call of God to us today. This is the call of the church today, my friends. And we can make a difference and we can change. And the power of God can bring revival in ways that we don't even understand. And that's each of us. That's not just Jim. That's not just Terry. That's just not just the, the music people. That's each of us. I don't care what your position, and I don't care how old you are. God is not finished with you until you're in that casket. And you keep at it because there's new life and there's new hope. And he wants to work miracles through all of you as his people. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence in this place today. 
I feel I need to pray for some people who are going through some hard times. <clears throat> they feel, in a sense, you've abandoned them. Lord, make your presence known to them in some way today, even today. May there be hope that there's something beyond what they have today and where they are. And Lord, give us courage to encourage each other. And then when that deep encouragement comes, give us courage to step out on it. Thank you for all that you're doing in this place today. May we live, leave this place not the same as we walked in because of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.